Welcome to the Tyndale Insider Podcast. On today's episode, Tyndale's Senior Communication Manager, Sharon Levitt, speaks with author Jeannie Light about her upcoming memoir, Beautiful on the Mountain. If you enjoyed the classic novel, Christie, and the best-selling Midford series, then you'll love Beautiful on the Mountain, a real-life tale about serving God in unlikely circumstances. To learn more about this book, visit Tyndale.com. Now, here's Sharon's conversation with author Jeannie Light. Hello, this is Sharon Lovett of Tyndale House Publishers. Today, I'm interviewing Jeannie Light, author of Beautiful on the Mountain. Hi, Jeannie. How are you today? Hello, Sharon. How are you? I am well. I'm well, too. I've been excited to have this time with you so that others might hear a little bit about your story and, more importantly, get the whole thing by reading your book, Beautiful on the Mountain. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and where you live and and what you do besides writing books? Well, I am. I live currently in Louisa, Virginia, beside a small lake. One of my friends calls it a puddle. Um, and I garden and mow lawn and do the things that people generally do. I am involved with lay ministry at Turo Episcopal Church, and I have been until. 2010, busy with artwork, marketing mostly. I worked with a deaf artist for a number of years and finally closed that out because he had passed on to glory and it was no longer useful to try to market some of the art. But I still do occasional shows of the sculptures that we worked on. Mm. So you're you're very creative, obviously, and um, that comes out in your book, Beautiful on the Mountain. Can you uh, describe briefly describe Beautiful on the Mountain? It is a memoir. I would say that it's set in a little hamlet on the edge of nowhere. I'm fond of saying that to get there, you throw away the map and follow the creek, and then you swing in on the grapevines. <laughs> uh, it was a fairly prosperous, bustling mountain community until the Shenandoah Park was established, and they moved out. The park moved out the mountain people, so that a lot of the economic reasons for Graves Mill disappeared. And the book is the story of some of those people on the edge of the mountain, there on the edge of the park, uh, and their longtime dream of getting their little church back. And I ended up being the designated person to get their little church open and moving again. Hmm. Well, that in itself is a tale. Um, who would you say Beautiful on the Mountain is for? I, I would say that it is probably for the Christian or the nominal Christian. But I don't think it there is a particular target age group. I've told a lot of these stories in in public addresses and in teaching and and conferences and one thing and another. And the young people are just as excited as older people and men sometimes more than women, which mm. has always surprised me. I think it's the element of adventure mm. and the wild country and the back to nature, mm -hmm. but it often really appeals to, to men 
as well as women. Hmm. That's interesting. I wonder if that has to do with how uh, oftentimes men uh, are visual hearers. You know, they'll say that men understand communication when people will paint a picture. And since you are so creative in your uh, expression in the book, if that's what resonates with men, that that's an interesting thought. Um, well, I think people would like to know how you ended up in Graves Mill. I ended up in Graves Mill because in a divorce settlement I was given or I it felt the lot fell to me for five hundred or seven hundred acres of mountain. And that might sound like a lot of mountain, and it is a lot of mountain. But at that point in time, you could hardly give mountain land away. Mm. And the land itself, we used to say, was so poor that a rabbit had to pack a sack lunch going through. <laughs> uh, it uh, was not terribly productive except for timber, and much of the land was very, very steep. And I knew that it was an unusual tract. There were bear caves in the uh, cliff surface. And I was told, several of the old-timers in the, in the hamlet told me that what they, when they had been up there, they had seen the remains of hollowed-out logs that the Hessian soldiers had used to hide in when they deserted during the Revolutionary War. Uh, I never saw any of that. I think it had all crumbled to dust, but more than one person said they, that he had seen such. And it was home to bear and deer, of course, but also some transitional species because it was right on the line between the north and the south. And I have always had a heart for the land itself, mm -hmm. and I was very concerned that the land be provided for and I needed to find a new life. Mm -hmm. So I had been to um, Virginia Tech to check with their ag department to find out what was the best use for the land, and in the earlier times, there had been sheep farms there. So while I knew it would take some really careful attention that, that the land might not get overgrazed, that that seemed to be the best thing to run on the land. And I needed a new life, and I needed to be sure that the mountain was well cared for. So that's how I came to Graves Mill. Hmm. But the sheep farm, whatever happened to that? Well... I kept planning to run a sheep farm, but when I came up there to rewire the fences, uh, I was asked to get the old church open. And that changed the direction of my life in a hurry. Yes. Well, one of the things that I was struck with as I read your book was the way you dealt with your grief um, over the demise of your marriage when you moved into the Graves Mill community. You were making a new life, as you just said. And you have a phrase in your book where you said that living there was the best soul medicine I could possibly have received. Can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by this? I had no idea how proud I was. I had no idea how secure I was as an intellectual and how dismissive I was of those with less in the way of intelligence and education. Uh, and I had no idea how 
much. I relied on my social position and the attention that I got because of belonging to a wealthy circle. I had no idea until I ended up in the bare bones of utter simplicity. Uh, People treat you quite differently if you are not rich than they do if you're rich. And it's not it's not intentional, it's not even conscious. But even in the churches we pay a great deal of deference to people who have more, either a whole string of degrees or a whole bank account. <laughs> bringing the bags of money, you know, silently along behind them. F. Scott Fitzgerald said the rich are different. Mm -hmm. And that's not really true at bottom. But they expect to be treated differently, and they are treated, treated differently. And if you think about it, perhaps you too are a little bit shy of going up to somebody who drives a, or has a, a chauffeur to drive a Rolls Royce, and you know he is very, very wealthy and very, very smart. Mm-hmm. It's much harder to approach people like that. Well, all of a sudden in Graves Mill, all those defenses were torn away, and I was forced to be just me without the special insulation of either being a professor or teacher or rich. It was that simple. And that's good soul medicine for any of us. It brings us to our knees. It makes us rub shoulders with his small creatures, and we're all small creatures. So your former life was dramatically different in those ways that you've just described. The wealth and the uh, academic and the cultural differences were stark. Yes. Yes, it was quite different uh, in Graves Mill. Um, Now, I am very grateful for the education that I had. I'm very grateful for all of those all of those special advantages. But as far as the social life in Graves Mill was concerned, it didn't make any difference. Mm. And frankly, if you had to chop wood, the only thing that mattered was whether you had a good axe and a good aim. <laughs> and the rest of it was pretty inconsequential and let me tell you on a cold winter day when there's two feet of snow on the ground and nothing is moving anywhere knowing how to use the axe is a lot more important than knowing how to parse uh, verbs and nouns in Greek and Syriac (laughs) did you know how to use an axe before you came uh, I had a, I grew up on a farm in Michigan until I was, uh, until I went to college. So I had some introduction to that, but I never had to be serious about it. Mm. And this was serious business. <laughs> you know, this wasn't just, oh, I'll see if I can do this. Mm. Uh, this was, <laughs> you do it or else. Well, tell us a little bit about where you ended up living. I mean, describe the um, home that you lived in, because I think this goes into why it was a matter of survival for you to know how to use that axe. Well, uh, in the book, I'm not sure how much I should tell about about the book, but give us I, a little, I, I, a little, a little bit. I ended up in a small cottage in the, really, it was a a ghost town. The stores were closed up. 
uh, there was a post office, and that was it. Uh, there were a few houses, but because of the change in the economy uh, and the closing of the hollows in the relocation of people, there many of the, the, the stores were no longer... Uh, so it simply made no sense to have stores there anymore. And after the virgin timber was logged out, the logging operations were pretty minimal too. So there just wasn't much there. And right in the middle of the little hamlet, what was left of it, was a bungalow belonging to, as many of the places did, someone who had roots there but had moved away. And he was in Pittsburgh or nearby, and his father had owned the house. The pump froze up, and Charles Jenkins, whom I think we're going to I'm sure we'll end up talking about Charles. We can't not talk about Charles Mm -hmm. Uh, because he was was so central to the book and indeed to the little hamlet. Charles met me in the middle of the road and said, we got a house for you. And I had been planning to move a trailer under the mountain, Mm -hmm. temporarily at least, in order to get something happening up there. But um, suddenly I had a a little cottage, three-room cottage, in the middle of Graves Mill, and it had no washer and dryer. It had an old fireplace. The the original house had burned down, and they had managed to save the old stone fireplace, which had been in the center of the big house that had been there. And there was a pot hook, the original, still in the fireplace. And because it had it gone through the fire, they put a brick face on the living room side. And there was some rather slender electric heaters along the walls. And when the wind blew off Jones Mountain, I could get the place about 50 degrees in the wintertime. with the fireplace going, and I found myself studying with gloves on in comparison to having three rooms of a plantation or three floors of a plantation house and a farm manager and a housekeeper. Mm -hmm. It was a major change. Mm Well, thank you for that. Um, let it, let's talk about Charles, because he, he shows up, Charles Jenkins shows up early in your book, and he is prominent throughout the entire book. Can you tell us a little bit about Charles? Charles, Charles was unforgettable. Now, that doesn't tell you very much, but he was a short man, and he always reminded me of some of those Basque farmers that you see in Normandy. Mm. Uh, he had bright red cheeks, and he uh, invariably had a pipe between his teeth. Mm-hmm. And he had definite opinions about everything in the world. <laughs> I don't think that, I can't remember, but I don't think he had gone beyond the eighth grade. And But in his time, eighth grade education was significant. Uh, I think you had to pay a, a tuition to go to high school in Madison Town, and I'm not sure whether he did or not. Then that really doesn't matter. His family had been prominent in the valley, been prominent farmers, and so he had a long history there. And his mother had been a major mover in the. The Graves Mill Missionary Society, and Charles was a deacon of the little church, along with Ms. Dolly, who is another character in the book, and Mr. Hume. They were all 
uh, officers of the, the church. And Charles never, never accepted the closing of that church. He kept the lawn mowed, and he was sure, in fact, they were all sure, that one day that little church would be open again. At the time, and I'm afraid it's still the case, the theory was, and I'm afraid it is, that small churches like Graves Chapel, Graves Mill, should be closed down and because everybody can drive and so everything needs to be consolidated into a village, into larger uh, institutions so that you can pay the preacher. And basically, Graves Mill closed, Graves Chapel closed, because they could no longer pay their portion and they couldn't pay a preacher. When it was built in the, well, it was, it was the chapel was built in 1885, but the church actually predated that. The way you handled preachers was to pay them a portion, but the portion could be cabbages and apples and a bale for the horse. And unfortunately, a Ford doesn't run on hay very well. <laughs> and you can't trade apples for the local doctor's services very well. They need cash money. And therefore, the little church closed. Um, and the theory is that if you consolidate everybody and everything, then you can pay the preacher a good wage. It, the problem with that theory is that it destroys communities or it doesn't provide a voice or a center for communities. And many of the people actually did move on down river and went to the larger churches, but a number of them didn't because they didn't fit yeah. down in this among the town folks. They were country people, and the country people didn't think too much of them, and they didn't think too much of town people either. Mm. It seemed, the cultural divides were often very great, mm. and they still are. Mm. Our communities reflect who we are, and so there's a combination of economics and the and reaching into the heart of a, a community. So That's a long answer. And well, well anyway, bottom line, I meant to tell you about Charles. Yeah. Uh, he had been a deacon in the church uh, for time unknown, but a long time. But he said that until I came and we started studying the scriptures in the community, and I gave him an NIV, Bible, he said, I, I've heard that Bible all my life, but I never understood it before. Mm. And that was, I think, one of my chief joys when I was there. Yeah. That he finally understood. Yes. So when he asked you to uh, open up that chapel again, probably something that you never imagined you would do. Um, tell us how, as you've thought back in your own family history, how God might have prepared you to do just that. Well, it, God's providence, his prevenient grace is pretty amazing. Uh, one of the things that nearly knocked me over was when I realized what I was uh, headed for after I was asked to get the church open was that I had biblical Greek in my background. Hmm. In college, I started studying classical Greek and really loved it. I've always liked languages and I loved Greek. Well, by the second year, the class had dropped down to three and two of the three not sorry, four, 
and two of the four were headed into the ministry, and they wanted biblical Greek rather than classical Greek. Mm -hmm. And my nose was so out of joint, you wouldn't Mm -hmm. believe it. Mm -hmm. I did not want to study Koine Greek, biblical Greek. But I had started the course, so therefore I took biblical Greek. And all of a sudden, here I am with a church, and to get that open and to minister to the people, and I've got a biblical Greek in my background. (laughs) Believe it or not. But it was not something. And the, the, my disgust over having to take biblical Greek gives you an idea that I was not thinking about being a missionary at all. Uh, my great-grandfather had been a Baptist preacher, circuit-riding preacher, and missionary on the frontier in Michigan, and had we... I grew up on stories of his life. Uh, his uh, uh, his work with the Indians. He preached the sermon of the last of the war chiefs there. And my grandmother said that you could see the braves coming in out of the from the edge of the woods, around the the parsonage, coming to get him and my great grandmother because they worked both as medical missionaries and as preachers. And I admired him tremendously, but that wasn't for me. (laughs) No way. And all of a sudden, here I am with this little church on the edge of nowhere that I'm supposed to get open and... uh, operating again I admired my great grandfather but I certainly never expected to live it live that way yeah there were a lot of surprises for you uh, when you moved there I I think about the the area that you lived in you you've described it a little bit as kind of a ghost town and yet um, I remember that your your home was actually in the middle of the community in some ways, but you're also isolated. So how was this isolated world serene in some ways and a way of connecting with God? And then were there ways in which it was scary for you to live there? Well, the the house, this little three-room cottage was in an isolated area but I was anything but isolated because being at the fork of the road and near the post office which was the social center people were across my doorstep all the time I was anything but isolated and incidentally that was one of the the real cures for grief because I could, I had so many people around me, you know, not crowds, but surprising number of people came here and out of the hollows here and there. And so I never knew who was going to show up on the doorstep. And I was brought up that if somebody comes to the door when you're serving a meal, you ask them in and put a plate on the table. Well, I discovered that some of the people were very good at noticing when there was a strange car in my yard, and they would come in, and I'd say, well, you know, would you like to join us? Don't mind if I do. (laughs) (laughs) So there wasn't, surprisingly, not a lot of privacy. I was very much in the center of things, and you could either hate it or love it. And because they were such, there were so many interesting stories, there were so many interesting people, I didn't have a chance to dig into myself and feel sorry for myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was either learn to love or 
die hmm. in more ways than one. And I had plenty of plenty of subjects to spend my loving on. Uh, it was a scary place. Well, I had a dog, Talus, and he's almost a major's character in this story. And we were walking on the mountain farm one afternoon, and I did not have any defense with me at all. I was just walking, and it's spring, and it's time for the bears to come out of hibernation. And we turn around a bend in the woods, come into a little clearing, and there is a great big mama bear. I'm not, probably 600 pounds, and I am praying, oh, Lord, don't let Talus charge. Don't let Talus charge. That's the dog. Please, Lord, don't let him bark. Talus, bless his heart, was a coward, and he got behind Mama <laughs> and cowered and trembled, and the bear looked up, and I stood absolutely still. And eventually it ambled off down the track. Mm. And you had to keep one eye open for rattlesnakes. And there were occasional skirmishes in the valley. I never had any problems after I moved there. But I know that just over the mountain, sometimes you the emergency room at the hospital in Charlottesville would be full of people who beat one another up on Saturday night. Um, we never had anything like that, though, in Graves Mill after I moved there. <laughs> well, when you, you, you talked a little bit about walking in the mountain, and you describe uh, some of the beauty that was there. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? I'm trying to discern what's the best thing to say, the, the, the big trees yes. at the top of the mountain. Yes. Um, there, were some, there was some virgin timber left at the top of the mountain. Really quite amazing that it was there because much of the, well, really, the whole area had been logged off. They and stripped entirely in because it was you know glorious timber but there were there were a few patches on this poor tract of land up at the top that were in such steep territory that the loggers had never been able to reach them especially well these were the days when they were using horses to draw the skids. So no one had ever been able to reach them. And you never have, unless you have been somewhere where there was a champion tree, you've never seen trees like that. Mm. I have never seen anything mm. to match those trees. There were poplars and red and white oak up at the top. And there are some very exciting stories in the book about fighting to save those trees. Mm. Yes, it was it was a great story. Um, I am also wondering if uh, there was one, there's so many wonderful characters in your book, and I love people, and I know that you do too, and uh, like myself, you probably never would have encountered most of these people in your former life. You, you probably wouldn't have unless the Lord uh, dropped them in your backyard. But I, I really wanted to meet those friends. And there was one in particular. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about Elsie. You called him a genuine saint. And could you tell us a little bit about him and why you considered him so? Yes. What is it James says about true religion is to look after widows and orphans and keep yourself unspotted from the world? Mm -hmm. And Elsie had been in a shooting accident of some sort when he was 
a boy was lame and for all his working life he walked to town which was you know a good 10 miles distance unless somebody gave him a ride worked for a flooring company he couldn't read or write never learned either one and I have never known anyone who loved the Lord so deeply he was poor Uh, I went to his house and between the two befores he had very neatly and carefully nailed up pasteboard boxes and he'd flattened out for insulation Mm -hmm. There were no inside walls, oh. no plaster, you know, nothing like that. Clean as a whistle in there. And I never, ever heard him complain. And he took care of his mentally challenged sister who couldn't read and write. Her emotions were pretty unstable. And I don't know what caused the, her problems. But here he is, afflicted himself, taking care of his sister. Everything is neat and clean, and he is praising the Lord the whole time. And it isn't, it isn't any kind of feigned praise. Hmm. And... His mother had known how to read, and she read him the Bible when he was small. And do you know, I have never met anyone who knew so much scripture. I believe he knew the whole Bible, but I'm not sure of that. I know he knew the whole New Testament, Mm. word for word. And the Pentecostal church, bless their hearts, had given him a tape recorder and Bible tapes so that he could listen to the scriptures, but I don't really think he needed the tapes. (laughs) And he really lived in thanksgiving, in joy, in humility, in service, without being perfectly content with whatever God gave him. I've never known anyone else like that. Have you? No, what a gift. What a gift from God. Um, yeah, and you know, in most of the observable ways, the people of Graves Mill couldn't have been more different than those that you lived with in your prior life, like an Elsie. But there were some ways that you discovered you were more alike than you thought. Um, can you point to one event or situations, circumstances where you started to see them in a different light as uh, having having some commonalities with you? Well, oh, I must correct you a little bit. I would have met some of these people in t- <coughs> excuse me, I would have met them in town. Mm-hmm. I would have passed them on the street. I am would not have had a close relationship with any of them, like Elsie. Yes. It was living next door and having them cross my doorstep on a regular basis that made a difference. And I can't really point to a single incident that made a difference because it isn't really a single event that changes us. It's one event after another. If we have eyes to see, and if you see God at work, and it's the the process over time that makes a difference. And I th- that's why small towns and small churches and small places are important, and I think we need to preserve them and care for them. This is something I did not know when old Charlie said, we want you to get the church open. (laughs) Uh, I I certainly didn't know that. 
but knowing, having seen so much in retrospect and also having read a good deal from both people like Wendell Berry and also from rural uh, pastors, we need small places because, you see, if you're always on the move, you never have time to grow. And growth is a process through time. And the thing about a small town is that you live out your life over time with others who also live out their lives over time. And you stay there to see it happen. Mm. There is such a thing as having a history. People know who you are. And you know who they are. And we grow, I think, because we rub shoulders with one another. We do really, because God wired us, you know, it's not good for man to be alone. The family is the basic unit of community, but it's not good for us to be alone. And it's in community that we develop because we're we're wired that way. Why did Jesus call 12 people and not just go out as one preacher? Not only because he uh, needed to spread out the, the word, but also because they needed fellowship with one another. And if we're constantly on the move, we can just remain stuck in the same spiritual and emotional place, even if we move up the ladder. Because it's in community that we're corrected and reproved, and in loving others, we see examples and grow. That's a long speech. I'm sorry, but I do care about this particular issue. Yes. Is Do you think it's possible for many of us, we don't live in small communities, and it is easy to get lost and to not have accountability. So what, what do you say to those people whose lives are not in small communities and probably won't go back there? Can they, can they grow? How, what kinds of things do they need to put into their lives so that they can have some kind of small, small community in their life to keep them accountable and not in uh, a hierarchical, judgmental kind of way, but more of a growth-enhancing and enhancing way so that we can grow closer to uh, the Lord's likeness. I think that we're we're doing that through some some in uh, in the in the bigger picture, both in America and abroad, in such things as the Alpha Program and home groups, yeah. the communities are perhaps more superficial mm-hmm. in the sense that we don't have to depend on one another. Mm. The difference between a small community at least an earlier small community, and, say, a home group, is that you are economically dependent on the area. Mm-hmm. And you, you really needed one another. You think about the old barn racings, for example, mm-hmm. when everybody worked together. In Graves Mill, it was the silage making, when everybody got together and, and pitched in. So it's possible to do the same thing, but you have to be more intentional about it. It's a little more artificial because we don't have the same basic connections to one another. We don't know our histories in the same way. You know, Charles knew everybody's great-grandfather, but nobody knew my Mm great-grandfather except what I told about him. Yeah. Yeah, that that's a great point. Um and yet it's important to uh establish some kind of community even if it's doesn't have the benefits of having the history and the long the long relationships where they know your story. 
Well, the thing of it is that the larger places have their have their work too. A big church, a mega church, has resources that a small community does not have. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that we were so blessed was that the larger and more affluent church, we were never supported economically, but they did reach out to us with their gifts in terms of their talents, their abilities, and that was very helpful. I think that could even be a model that if the mega churches were intentionally willing to share some of their gifts with the smaller places and if the smaller places would be willing to accept, um, it would be a much healthier uh, healthier world altogether. Mm-hmm. But even if in a particular area that's true, I think that would be leaven in on both for the large and the small places. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got a question that kind of somewhat relates to that. You, you so beautifully and so graciously tell about how the people of Graves Mill enriched your life. But I know from the book that there are ways that I think the people of Graves Mill would say you enriched theirs too. Um, there were some things that you did when the church started going that uh, used your gifts from your old life, and uh, I think they enriched and introduced some of the people there to uh, an enriched kind of spirituality and Christianity. Can you can you talk about one of those stories that stands out in your mind? Oh my goodness! One of the stories that stands out in my mind. Um. What did I do for them? Oh my! What about when you brought the? What about when you brought in the um, the dancers? Oh well, it enriched everybody. That one enriched everybody's love. (laughs) Um, I had made friends with some liturgical dancers in Washington at American University. And, well, liturgical dance simply wasn't very common back in the 79, 80. Uh, You didn't see it, at least not in this part of the world. (laughs) But there was a troupe that, uh, and part of that troupe was actually composed of professional dancers, ballet artists doing wonderful, wonderful work at at American University. Well, one of the ballerinas called me up and said, when she found out the church was open again, could she come down and bring liturgical dance to Graves Mill? So I said, yes. Oh, that would be wonderful. And then realized what I'd done, <laughs> and I'm faced with explaining what liturgical dance is supposed to be to people who have seen ballerinas on television, but they haven't a clue how that's going to comport with good Baptist preaching. <laughs> <laughs> I think my... I. I think I say that my knees were knocking so loud I thought I needed knee pads between them. As I'm standing up there trying to explain that we are going to have a liturgical dance program. And Charlie wanted to know if I was going to bring them folks what don't have nothing but bare legs and they shows everything they've got except for that ruffle. And I'm trying to explain that, <laughs> no, these are leotards. And anyhow, everybody was so curious that they forgave the whole possibility that it might be not quite decent. Um, and 
everybody in the it, it was a bit there was a big turnout and people came from all over to see what in the world was happening in Graves Mill. Um, I was thinking about a different kind of enrichment. Um, a story that is not in the book. Um, and it, it's from a bit later because this book only covers about two years. Mm. But this one is really illustrates how much they did for me, mm. and I could, in turn, give to them. Um, there was an old African-American fellow, actually two of them. They were cousins. I'm not going to give their names. They um, had worked. They were hard, hard workers. And all the farmers up and down the valley appreciated, and they would hire them because they knew they were honest, they were good workers, they were hard workers. And they drank. They made 50 cents a day at the top wages. Mm. And it hadn't been any better than that all their lives. Uh, One of them lived in an old house way back in the woods it had been a fairly decent farmhouse at one time but it was nothing but a shambles and the other one eventually died but to illustrate how bad it was on a, they'd go into town on weekends and get drunk and you had to drive very carefully if you were coming back from town after dark because the two of them would be walking down the center of the road and they'd bump into one another <laughs> <laughs> because they couldn't walk a straight line so you had to be really careful because uh, we'll call it Jim and John might be drunk and, and weaving around in the center of the road. Um, well, one of the cousins died, mm. and the other one was left to take care of his mother. Everybody up and down the valley said there was never anyone as kind as old John. He was a kind man. He was known as a kind man. And I went regularly to visit his mother and bring what I could and to visit him also because he was finally taking care of her about 24-7. He cared for her as tenderly as any woman could have done. And so we'd we'd pray, and I'd talk about all the things that were going on up and down the valley. One day, old Johnny called me out to the lean-to where there was a wood-burning stove, and he said, Missy, Missy, I can't stop drinking. I've tried I've tried, and I can't stop. Mm. When I quit, I get the shakes, and it hurts so bad, I have to have a drink. I don't drink much no more, but I just can't stop. Do you think that Jesus will forgive me and let me go to heaven? Mm. And... In a flash, I thought, this man can't read and write. He can't drive. He has no access to any of the aids and helps that middle-class people have when they find themselves addicted. He's worked his whole life for others. And I said, and I know he loves Jesus. And I said, Johnny... The Lord loves you, and I know he'll welcome you home. Mm. Mm. For me, it showed me how hollow some of our expectations, especially mine, can be, and how little love we have. 
but I was able to love him enough to reassure him. My, what a beautiful story. Well, Jeannie, we're t our time is nearly finished, but I have um, two more questions that I really do want to ask you. And the first one is that um, we know from what we've talked about that this was a very unexpected place that God called you to, completely different than anything you ever thought or imagined you were going to live into, and yet you accepted it from his hand with such grace that it, it truly inspires me uh, for what might come next in my life. Well, what I'm wondering is, after uh, living through this, and not just living through it and surviving, but thriving and growing closer to the Lord, what advice would you give someone who finds themselves in one of these situations, maybe uh, an unwanted divorce or widowhood, or perhaps they've lost a, a child or had another major lifestyle change because of illness or uh, tragedy? What kind of advice and hope would you offer the reader uh, based on your experience? Well, what I'd hope they would get out of the book is the, and of course it's a true story, the incredible ways that God provides. We don't expect it. And I think oftentimes because we have so many conveniences, we've forgotten God lives. He's real. And he does what he said he'll do. Um, my advice to someone who finds himself or herself facing a mountain is take it one step at a time, one day at a time, and believe God. And when you have seen his answers in one way, remember that and give thanks and take the next step. Uh, I have always appreciated St. Jane uh, an unexpected French saint, and she said, do what needs to be done when it needs to be done in the way it needs to be done, and just keep on doing that, and hey. believe God, and love others. Can you say that, that again? I love that, that quote. Do what needs to be done when it needs to be done in the way it needs to be done. Just keep on doing one thing after another and trusting God. And when he has done a good thing, and he does many good things, maybe it's nothing but the sun in the morning when you've got a washing to get on the line, if you're country folk, give thanks. And remember, because he's a God of history, he works through time. Wonderful. It may sound, well, it may sound cheap, but it's not cheap grace. It's grace to which you apply elbow grease. Well... I think we're finished for today, and I just want to say thank you. And I'm so looking forward to seeing the final book in print, which will happen early this summer. And it will be available everywhere bookstores are, are, books, books are sold online and uh, brick and mortar. And we thank you for writing this beautiful memoir and uh, pray that many, many other people will pick it up and read all the rich stories and see underneath it all the value of community and uh, the fact that God is real. And we know that because we can look at your life and see how he was there with you every step of the way. Well, I thank you, Sharon. Thank you and... 
special thanks to Tyndale. It's been a wonderful joy to work with all of you and still is a joy to work with you. Thank you, and may God bless you, and may God bless our readers. And God bless you, too.